Recovery Elevator, episode 216. I just never imagined myself being that person. You know, you just think of old men going in and just trembling and has, has to get that first drink in them. And I was that person. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Libby. She's been sober for 112 days. She's 32 years old, and she's from Louisville, Kentucky. And before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator Podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years, and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. I was in a bookstore the other day and I was looking at the top 20 bestsellers and I noticed a trend. And before I go any further, I want to be clear the point of this episode is to calm and soothe those nerves out there. If I do this right, it will be uplifting. The point I want to make is that it's okay to be feeling a little anxious right now or a lot of anxious right now if that's how you're feeling. Guys, it's okay. Let it be. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with you. What I saw in the airport bookstore were several books with clear, unambiguous titles. Our society is collectively starting to wake up and looking for ways to unfuck ourselves. And I apologize, there will be a couple F-bombs in this episode. I usually do my best to bleep them out. I'm not even very good at matching up the beeps. It's kind of tough to do with the program I use. But these are the book titles, and I need to say the word, so I apologize in advance if I offend someone. Okay. Looking at the books, I saw Unfuck Yourself by Gary Bishop. I Used to Be a Miserable Fuck by John Kim. Calm the Fuck Down by Sarah Knight. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson. And this book by Mark Manson was actually in the Recovery Elevator Cafe or a book club. Great book. And then after doing a quick Amazon search, I found several more books with similar book titles such as Unfuck Your Brain by Faith Harper, Unfuck Yourself by Zoe Swain. And guys, I'm not 100% sure of what my book title will be, but it may have the words unfuck yourself somewhere on the cover. I want to be clear, I had this written down in my list of potential book titles well before I did this episode. Currently, unfuck yourself is not in the title. In fact, the title at this moment is alcohol is shit, but it's also the invitation. And somewhere below that, it might say control alcohol from the inside out or unfuck yourself from the inside out. Uh, When I'm finished with the book, I'm actually going to get some votes on this. So I want your opinion of what the actual book title will be. I'm looking forward to that process. So all of these books, including mine, isn't fulfilling a trend or a niche. It's a movement. There's a consciousness on the planet that is starting to say, hang on a second, this isn't working. Those of us who struggle or who have struggled with addiction sometimes think we're the only ones who reach a rough spot in life. Not true. Everyone does, and we're reaching a critical mass, especially in America and on a global scale, where people are starting to say, time out, hold the phone, I'm going to hit the pause button on this thing called life, it's not working. The formula I was told to follow in life isn't yielding the fruits I was promised, what's going on here? I know this feeling of unease is uncomfortable, but this is a good thing, believe me. I recently read an article titled The Age of Anxiety in the New Republic. There will be a link to this article in the show notes. Thank you, Carrie Mack, for doing the show notes. Um, So you go to recoveryelevator.com, episode 216, and find a link to these show notes. It says, according to studies by the National Institute of Mental Health, nearly 20% of Americans experience an anxiety disorder in a given year. Over 30% experience an anxiety disorder over the course of their lifetimes, and the rate is rising. 
The American Psychiatric Association, in a May study, drawing from a survey of 1,000 American adults, diagnosed a statistically significant increase in national anxiety since 2017. Again, listen closely. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with you right now. Yes, you, Jennifer, Scott, Kelly, listening right now, there's nothing wrong with you. Never has been, never will be. We are okay. Everybody listening right now, take a breath. We are just fine. This anxiety is a good thing. This collective state of unrest will eventually show us the way. You guys cool with this so far? You good? You dig? Okay, let's keep going. This jittery national mood has given rise to what Rebecca Jennings at Vox has dubbed anxiety consumerism. The rise of a plethora of products from fidget spinners to essential oil sprays to weighted blankets. These weighted blankets were initially developed for people with autism and PTSD as self-administered hugs to give the sensation of an embrace. But sales for these blankets have gone through the roof and everyone is buying them. Fidget spinners, weighted blankets, guys, 300 years ago, human beings aren't buying these products. Hell, 50 years ago, humans aren't buying these products. Perhaps the most well-known product to fall into this anxiety consumerism category is alcohol. Just about everyone on the planet right now needs a big hug. So who is going to initiate this hug? And guys, this is where it gets cool. Those who struggle with addiction are the trailblazers in the collective unfuck yourself movement. Not just for those who grapple with addiction to alcohol, but for everyone. As a global community, we're starting to see what's not working and alcoholics were the first to see it. We are leading this movement and will eventually be the ones who hold the door open for the rest of society. Let that last sentence sink in for a second. You and me, we will lead the unfuck yourself movement for everyone, not just those who struggle with addiction. Okay, and before we hear from Libby, let's hear from Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. This simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data, and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as the 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Recovery Elevator a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at elevator.robinhood.com. Again, sign up at elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R, .robinhood.com. Libby, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Paul? Libby, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I've been sober 112 days today, um, about three and a half months. 112 days. In an email you sent me, you said October 23rd, 2018. Congratulations. Nice job. How's it feel? It feels great. It's a miracle, really. <laughs> yeah. And occasionally I like to get out of the order. Um, in these last 112 days, what's the biggest challenge you've encountered? Let's see. I'd say the cravings in the beginning are just really hard to get through. I, like the first month, even two months, that obsession and the craving to drink is so powerful. That is, you know, definitely the toughest time, I'd say, in sobriety. It was. It took me a few times. I actually started trying to get sober in June and had a few slips or whoopsie-daisies, as you'd say, and then had um, a big relapse, which ended um, October 22nd. So I had to learn some new methods to kind of get past that initial craving and obsession. Libby, I am jealous of you, sweetheart. You try to get sober a few times. I try to get sober a few hundred times, or maybe <laughs> even a thousand times. And I'm excited to dive more into those cravings, how you got past them, the techniques and strategies that you used. And also, listeners, Libby sent me an email asking me if there was a specific podcast episode where we talked about spouses in recovery, where we talked about how the spouse is supportive, however, you still bring in alcohol in the house and, and still, still being a trigger. So we are going to talk more about that. I'm excited to have you on the podcast, Libby. I know a lot of people 
are going to resonate with that. Um, before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, well, I'm 32 years old. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm an interior designer. Right now, I'm waiting tables at night, kind of looking for a new daytime position. I've been married for five years this September. We don't have any kids. We have um, a dog named Boomerang and a cat named Bryce. For fun, I'm still kind of figuring that out. I really like to work out almost every day. I like to kind of do crafts around the house. I've been finally actually decorating my house for once. I was always so just consumed with alcohol. Even as an interior designer, my I didn't really spend any time on my own home. So I've been doing that, which is fun. When the weather was a little nicer, I did kind of start to hike a little bit. I like to go to the park. So I'm really looking forward to spring. And Libby, one of the most enjoyable parts about this journey in sobriety is, is like you mentioned, is what do you like to do for fun? Well, I'm still trying to figure that out. And in my experience, this doesn't end. And a gentleman named Jeff, who we interviewed four or five episodes ago, he put it perfectly that sobriety is like a science experiment and, or just an experiment, I think is what he said, but it's so cool. You can just try all these new activities. You can be present in the moment. Um, and if the activity is in the morning, which I have like fishing or something like that, you're not hungover for it. And, and so I encourage you to embrace the whole, I don't know what I like to do anymore. I found I was extremely creative with music when I was uh, in my, in my late teens and in early college. And, and that creativity has come back, but in different formats. It's, it's really cool how I'm, I'm still finding new hobbies and, and things to fill my time with and give listeners a little background about your drinking. Libby, get us up to speed of where we're at today. Talk to us about when it started, when you first realized, uh Oh, alcohol might not be serving a purpose. Did you ever put any rules into place? Did you ever have a rock bottom moment? Let's hear about it. I'm excited to hear. Sure. So like most alcoholics, I had my first drink around 15 years old and high school, you know, I only drink on the weekends. Then I didn't really have like this aha moment, like, Oh, this is what I've been missing this whole time. Um, it was just kind of fun. I like, you know, to make people laugh. And that happened a lot when I was drinking. So I, I did enjoy it. Let's see, I started to party a little more in my early 20s. I'd say I started drinking every day in my early 20s. And then but I was still very functional. I, you know, generally always had two jobs. You know, I, I was very responsible. I stayed out of trouble. So I was able to coast through, you know, most of my 20s without getting in any legal trouble or anything like that with my drinking. I'd say 2017, I got laid off suddenly from a day job that I had about four years. And that's kind of when my drinking got wheels. So I kind of started drinking all day for a little bit. Hang on, let's dive into that moment a little bit more. So in 2017, you got laid off from a job and that's when your drinking got wheels and it really ramped yeah. up. Talk to us more about that. What did it feel like and what led you, you think, to, to, really, to seeking alcohol to alleviate the pain? Yeah, well, I said laid off. I was pretty much fired suddenly. Like, I thought I was going in for a raise, and I was just fired out of the blue in kind of a hateful way. So it just, I had never been in through anything like that. It just, I compared it to, like, getting dumped by my first boyfriend. I was just heartbroken and devastated. So I, you know, my drinking had been heavy for those few years, but I was still functioning. When this happened, I started drinking, you know, all day for a couple of weeks. I was just a, a mess. And I then would experience like morning tremors or, sh or shakes, you know, and I hadn't really ever experienced that before. And that happened, you know, I just was, I'd say about a month or so. And then I got another job, but it was interior design, but appointment based only, which is kind of perfect for an alcoholic because I can make my own appointments. I can sleep in as late as I want. I can stop at three o'clock in the afternoon and go start drinking. So that was just really not a good environment for me at that time. Yeah. That flexible schedule being an entrepreneur or in, in that environment can be dangerous. Yes. So through to about um, the end of 2017, I my drinking had just gotten really heavy. I had, again, started drinking in the mornings to just even 
function. I just remember having to, you know, go to the liquor store at like 10 a.m. I had the shakes so bad. It just, I didn't even know. I just never imagined myself being that person. You know, you just think of old men going in and just trembling and has, has to get that first drink in them. And I was that person, you know, having to get some shooters and go into a parking lot and gag them down just to be able to walk into the office and type, you know. <laughs> so it just, that was really eye-opening for me. It was scary, but, you know, I didn't really get help then. I went to maybe a AA meeting. And when was, I, you said you went to one just wasn't AA ready. Is, is that what you said? You went to an AA meeting? Uh, yeah, maybe one or two. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is in early so 2018, mid-2018? Yeah, towards the end of 2017, early, yeah, to okay. early 2018. You said you called a friend, went to an A meeting, and you said you might not have been mm-hmm. ready. What was that like when you went to the meeting and you realized, eh, not, not for me? Well, it, I actually had to do a shot before I went into the meeting because this was an evening meeting. I hadn't really drank all day, and I was shaking so badly that I I had to have a shot before I even went into my first AA meeting. So that kind of tells you how serious I was about getting sober. So, yeah, I just, you know, went to a few of those, but just really didn't have any intention of stopping drinking. I think I just wanted to get control over it. I wanted to stop drinking during the day and just get a hold of my life again, be able to be a functional drinker like I used to be. And Libby, me and you got something in common. I went to a 10.30 a.m. meeting on a Saturday and I had a 20 ounce or whatever, a tall boy in the car. I think if you would ask people in 12 step meetings in AA, Hey, who's ever drank before a meeting? Uh, I think a lot of hands would go up. So when you said that's how serious I was about quitting drinking, I took that as a, uh, yeah, you were, you were serious about quitting drinking. <laughs> that's okay. Keep going. <laughs> so fast forward to 2018, I got a promotion at my job and I was still drinking very heavily. I was opening um, a new design studio here in Louisville and somehow was doing this all generally with a buzz because I was still having to drink during the day just to function. So I think it was, I got, I'd say, control of my drinking. I'd say in February, I when I say control, like I finally got back down to a couple of shots a night, maybe six pack of beer and was able to not have to drink during the day. And that lasted maybe two months. And Libby, that's and tremendous progress. How, how do you think you got back down to that amount and you weren't, you weren't shaking during the day? Cause a lot of people put black and white success parameters on recoveries and you're drinking. That's not success. And then you're not, that is success. But the way I see it is mm-hmm. you got down to a point where you weren't drinking as much. You weren't shaking during the day. Huge step in the right direction. How did you how did you make it that far? I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> I remember sitting at work and just having that feeling of relief when that hangover, I guess, went away or, you know, the, the shakes just stopped. And I was like, oh, I made it through that. So let's just get back on track. And that's what I did. So it was nothing short of a, a miracle, but it definitely didn't last. So I'd say about April of 2018, I found myself drunk at work and I went home to my husband and I was just sobbing that night. And I was like, I need, I need to go into a treatment program. I have to get a hold of this. It had just taken control of me all over again to where I was drinking at work every day. You know, it was just really scary at that point. That's a scary moment to get to because I've been there. I've got to get a handle of this. I'm not really sure how, but I've reached a point where I recognize I need help. Big moment in your journey. Yeah. So the next day I drank and then I tried to check myself into a treatment center. Is this in, inpatient, this time, outpatient? Inpatient. Gotcha. Yeah. So my insurance at this time was pretty much Obamacare and nobody would take it. So I, you know, went, started my intake process at a treatment center downtown and right when it was time to go in, they said, oh no, we don't, we don't take this insurance. So I had my husband come get me and we went to another place. They took me, it seemed like they took my insurance at that time, but it turns out they didn't. So basically it was just like a medical detox center and 
once they figured out I didn't have their, you know, the right insurance, they let me leave after like three days. And my mindset at this point was, well, I'm all good. I'm dried out. You know, I can just get back to normal life now. And that didn't really happen. My daytime boss uh, took about two weeks to let me even see her to come back to work. My pay was then cut in half. Uh, Things were going to be very different there. And I pretty much just started where I left off. So, you know, a couple of days to dry out and just picked up, you know, drinking every day, daytime drinking, and just went right back to where I was. So, And let me, let me make a quick comment on, on insurance there. Despite what, what people think about Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, it was a huge step in the right direction in terms of recovery and addiction. And in, in fact, a lot of people think it was Obama, George Bush, uh, signed some key legislation, and then Obama expanded on it, making it required for insurance companies to pay for rehab, inpatient, outpatient, to cover addiction. And this is a huge step forward in addressing addictions and, and with the stigma, huge step forward that these insurance companies recognize addiction as a disease that needs to be covered by their insurance. It's a massive step forward for addiction. Right now, 2018, 19, 17, 20, maybe the next couple of years, it's still a jumbled mess. And hopefully it continues to move forward in the right direction. And I can understand it's incredibly frustrating. But you mentioned you got in there, you had the issues with with insurance, which sucks because this is already difficult to navigate. It doesn't need to be added an additional layer of complexity. You dried out for three days and you said, okay, I'm good to roll. The initial withdrawal symptoms of in the detoxification process have gone away. And you said you picked up right where you left off. What lessons did you learn when you picked right back up where you left off? Well, I just, I had no real clue what it was to get sober. You know, thinking you you can just dry out and go back to normal is absurd. So at that point, I, you know, trying to think how to explain this. I'm sorry. Libby, you're doing fantastic. And I know a lot of people listening right now are nodding their heads. In fact, we insert a gap of silence. Nothing needs to be said after that. You thought you had it figured out. You had three days of sobriety. You just went through detox clinic or at a, a assistance of, of a different facility and then you're right back at it and this moment in in our journeys it, it's it's a tough one it's a tough one because we've had our ass kicked by alcohol many times in the past but right when we get three days under our belt and we we you know, we feel like the sky is given back to us we have wings to fly and then alcohol comes back and takes away the sky once again this is a this is a crappy part in a lot of journeys is an important part. And I say crappy, but it's also an important part. And and take us through the next steps in your journey. So the next step, I would say, uh, it wasn't even, I don't think, two weeks after I left that treatment center that my husband, you know, had just given up hope almost. He was just, you know, at this point, you know, I didn't have a day job to go to. So I was drinking from morning to night, I was just on our couch, a drunk mess. Every time he came home, he didn't know what he was coming home to. So he finally, you know, said, I'm leaving. I'm going to go stay at our friend's house, pack his bag. And, you know, I was like, so long, <laughs> you know, so drunk on the sofa that, you know, whatever, he'll be back. He called my best friend, the same one that took me to my first AA meeting and said, Libby's in trouble and I don't know how to help her. So she came over and took me back to her house, looked up some treatment centers and found the Healing Place, which is a big center here in Louisville, a fantastic program. It's completely free. So what is it called again? The Healing Place. The Healing Place, a free center Mm -hmm. in Louisville. Write it down. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It is mainly known, you know, as a homeless shelter. It's based on a lot of donations, but, you know, they'll, they'll take anybody in off the street and help them, give them a place to live. You know, it isn't ideal. You're living with a lot of women. It's kind of crazy in there, but, you know, it's a fantastic program. It's a 12-step program, so not putting it down or anything, but, you know, it wasn't my favorite place. <laughs> how long were you in there for? Basically, I went into detox, and I was there for four days. And left. And in that facility, I bet it did a good job of showing you of where it can lead. Am I right? Yes. Yes. You know, I felt very judgmental in the beginning, but the way I was drinking and driving towards the end and my blood alcohol levels, 
I would have been in prison, you know, and a lot of these people left prison or jail to go there for that treatment program. Wow. So it was just, it was very different. A lot of people off the streets there, you know, it's free. So there's no medical detox. And when I went in there, I had been on a four day bender. It was a, it was a really cold Turkey detox. I was throwing up for 12 hours. I was hearing things. I mean, I was, I was a mess. And day four, I was like, well, I think, I think I'm good to go. So I left there. So I'm pretty good. And I think I stayed sober about 10 or 11 days total after that and started drinking again, right back where I left off. Mm. Do you recall Um, what happened? Let's see. I had found a sponsor that had come in, you know, and said she was available for girls. So I called her right away when I got out and I had met with her, but immediately those cravings hit me and I had no, no tools to deal with them. I never admitted to having cravings. I never talked to people about it. I never spoke up in meetings. I just went, I just went straight to the liquor store and I was right back where I started off. I had a, gotten a serving job and was, you know, working with some friends and just started, you know, drinking every day at work and at night. And at this point, my husband, you know, I would just tell him, that I was coming home with a six pack and he didn't really know, I guess, how to help me. So, and he's, you know, a daily drinker. So it was kind of, we were co-signing each other at that point. Sure. But I hit, I hit my first bottom pretty quickly. After that, I showed up to work really drunk, uh, lost my job, got a ride home from a stranger. I mean, just all of these things. I had fallen out of my shower right before the shift. I had no room to be driving. I don't even know how I got to work. It was a disaster. And the next day, you know, and at this, a few weeks before this, you know, my husband was like, please just go somewhere for 30 days. You know, I really think, I really think you need to go into a treatment center for longer than just a detox. And at this point, I was like, you know what? this is my, this has to be my bottom. And so I went back to the healing place and I stayed for 30 days. For 30 days. And, and when you, and was that October 23rd, 2018? Was that 112 days ago? Nope. That was June 18th is when I went in. And so I left, you know, July 18th or. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Pick up, pick up when you got out after 30 days and, and bring us up to speed to your sobriety date. Yeah. So, I had about 74 days sober after this. I, you know, was doing really well. I was working with my sponsor, going to AA, I mean, like three AA meetings a day. And then just one day, it was kind of robotic. I just went to the liquor store and I don't know what what exactly was going through my brain. Like, maybe just one more. Let's see how, let's see how this goes. You know, maybe I can control it. It wasn't premeditated really at all. I wasn't having a terrible craving week or anything like that. I, I just did it. And I did it one night. I didn't really enjoy it. And, you know, my sponsor calls that a slip. And I went right back to going to meetings every day. You know, don't beat yourself up over it. Got right back on the wagon. And then I stayed sober for about 46 days. And I did it again. And then within a week after that slip, I went into a full relapse where I drank for about six days straight and really hit my second bottom, I guess, after that. And uh, the last day of that bender was October 22nd, and I've been sober ever since. Wow. Congratulations. And the way I see this, which I know a lot of people see it the same way, but sometimes in conventional recovery it's it's failure up until October 23rd, 2018, and now we're in this blissful, serene period of success. I see it completely different. At the end of 2017, you started getting these nudges from your body, from yourself, the external environment's like, okay, this is not working out. And you started moving in the right direction. You started getting you know, clumps of sobriety put together, the, the 30 days, the, the three days, the, the week, I think you mentioned. Fantastic job. And that all led you to October 23rd, 2018. Now, how do you look back at all those, I don't say all those relapses, but this whoopsie daisies, whatever you want to call them. uh, Those were all, those are all important lessons. How do you look at all that stuff? Absolutely important lessons. Uh, You know, you, and you hear it all the time. You, you learn from these 
slips or relapses. And I did learn where, you know, obviously the relapse starts in your head first. And I could feel these thoughts, you know, coming in, you know, start obsessing, cravings after work, things like that. So the first time, you know, I, I slipped, I, I didn't really know what caused it. The second time, I definitely, the thoughts in my head led me that direction. So I had just, you know, had a bad craving week, but I wouldn't say anything at a meeting. I wouldn't really, you know, I would tell my sponsor, but I wouldn't tell her how bad it really was, how much I was considering going to have a drink. Um, at this point, my husband, he had he had been really good when I first got out of rehab about not drinking at all. But after a couple of slips, I don't know if he kind of was just like lost faith in me a little bit or, but he was starting to, to drink every day again. And so coming home and smelling that on his breath was frustrating. And at one point, you know, I just started thinking about it more and more thinking about drinking. And I was one day I was like, he won't even smell it on me. You know, if he's been drinking, he's not even going to know if I have like one drink and it was just off from there. You know, I got away with that a couple of nights. It's kind of a blur because I don't remember. I never lied to my sponsor about drinking, but, you know, it, I don't really know how it went from those couple of drinks to my full relapse. But now I know when my thoughts start going that direction, I have a new method, you know, to deal with that, to deal with that, those cravings and that obsession. So my new method, I would say, is after my last relapse, my <clears throat> sponsor said, you know, you need to start hitting your knees every morning and praying. And, you know, I don't really have, um, I, I'm not religious. I have, you know, the higher power and I had been praying, but, you know, really nonchalantly it, when you hit your knees, you know, I was like, why do I need to do that? She said, it's, it's humbling. It's a form of surrender. Just do it. <laughs> So I started hitting my knees every day and praying. I anytime the thought entered my head, like I would think of a drink or going to a bar and I would get, you know, that that warm, fuzzy feeling that we get when we think about drinking that, you know, awesome memory that we have. We don't remember all the terrible times and how depressed and awful we felt when we drank. We just remember that that warm, fuzzy feeling. And anytime I would that thought would enter my head, I would just quickly say, a prayer, please take this desire away. Please take this obsession away. And that that seemed to help. And also, you know, I started speaking in, up in meetings a little bit. I still don't talk very much, but, you know, the holidays were really tough. Christmas was, like, totally kicked my butt. And I just w finally would go into a meeting and just cry. This is how I'm feeling. I really wanted to drink. I This is the, just the hardest thing I've ever done. I don't want to be like this, you know, and just totally open up. And that, that made a big difference too. Libby, the whole hit your knees and praying thing is, is big on multiple levels. I know a lot of people heard that and they're like, oh, geez, I don't want to pray to God, my higher power, et cetera, which is fine. That's fine. But it means something different. Hitting your knees and praying means you're asking for help. And whether you're praying to a doorknob, a tree, a high, whatever, you're practicing those muscles where you're asking for help. You're, you're reinforcing to the unconscious mind that, oh, I cannot do this alone, and I'm asking for help. Don't know who's listening. Doesn't matter who's listening. Because what happened after that? You said you started sharing more meetings. The unconscious mind was like, okay, we need some help. Let's start putting this out in the universe. I'm going to start talking about it more in meetings. And the magic started to happen. So whether you firmly believe you're praying to a deity of whatever sorts, that's maybe that's part of it. Trust is a huge part of it. But in addition to that, you're just asking for help. <laughs> and that's, that's like a 101 yeah. thing in recovery. And, and Libby, I'm excited to get to the spouse, to your husband here. But there's one question I need to ask before we get there. And that is the why. We've all heard drinking is but a symptom. Alcohol's not really the problem. Why do you think you drank? Why do I think he drank or nope, me? this is you. Why do you think you drink? Oh, <laughs> I would say definitely in the beginning, of course, I enjoyed it. But when I started drinking daily, you know, in my early 20s, I had a lot of trauma going on, a lot of family problems. And that was, that just made me feel better. You know, I immediately started isolating and even just drinking by myself at bars and stuff and, and that was just my coping mechanism. I, I never knew how else to deal with it. 
and then it just became a true habit, honestly, just drinking every day. And I think that's one of the hardest parts is of getting sober is it's a habit. <laughs> it's a really hard habit to break and then you miss it. So until I became physically dependent on it, you know, it was just what I did. You know, I worked in restaurant industry so long that it was, that's what everybody did. When you get off work, you go have a drinks to wind down from your long shift and it just escalated from there. Libby, thanks for answering the question. And it's a tough one to answer. I thought I knew, but it took me about three years before I fully uncovered it. And I don't even want to say fully, I'm, I'm still exploring it. So it's a tough question to answer and you're hundred percent right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a habit <laughs> big time. Probably the, the biggest habit we're going to break in our lifetime. And Libby, what would you like to cover in this next segment? The reason I contacted you was because I've, I've brought this up in meetings before. I, you know, my, my husband still drinks. It's really hard, but there was never a discussion about it. You know, a couple of people would recommend going to an Al-Anon meeting, but nobody really had any advice, you know, and I know that I knew there was other people dealing with it. So I just kind of wanted, I wanted somebody else that was experiencing the same thing and how they dealt with it. I was just looking for help. Absolutely. And keep in mind what I'm about to say is it's a little bit like taking stock tips from Bernie Madoff or hiring myself to come into your house as a, as an interior designer. I've got a bunch of printout photos of my standard poodle Ben on my wall. <laughs> but there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here with this. And first off, it sounds like your husband was integral and supportive. And in fact, he made an important call to one of your friends who came over and got you got to help. It's tough that this addiction affects us, of course, but obviously the people who were immediately surrounded by, and your husband probably struggled with this for a while. How can I help Libby? And he did what he knew he could do. And a, he left. He said, I'm out of here. I got, I got to go at times. And then he made a couple calls. I think, I don't, I don't know the whole story here. And then it seems like it has switched a little bit now with 112 days in sobriety that you, you had asked him to not bring alcohol in the house, which he respected that rule for a while and fantastic job on setting a boundary. Boundaries are huge in recovery. And it sounds like a couple more pieces were connected. When you mentioned you work, you wait tables at a restaurant. You are in, as they say, in Top Gun, target-rich environments almost all hours of the day if there's alcohol in the house. And I think some more boundaries need to be set, A. Again, I think some boundaries need to be set. Some more conversations need to be had. But B, it's just funny the way life works and the sobriety journey, and I've been more in tune to this the further I go, is we tend to get in life exactly what we need. And... When I first read this, I was like, whoa, this is, this is a tough situation to be in, which of course it is. However, you have an opportunity to fully go within because changing your husband on this, you can have 20, 30, 40 conversations with him. I'm not really sure it's going to do much. Um, in order for him to change, it's, that's a whole different ballgame. He's got to do that on his own. And I think there's an opportunity to fully go within. I'm not saying line up all the alcohol he has in the house on the table. You sit in a chair and have internal dialogues with the alcohol. Not at all. Um, again, I think there's a combination of some boundaries need to be set, but you are being presented with some opportunities to really flex those emotional sobriety muscles. And you're doing all the right things, Libby. You're doing all the right things. You're, you're reaching out to people. You're getting advice and you might hear what I have to say and be like, that Paul guy he has no idea what he's talking about. And that's totally fine. I encourage you to keep talking about this as you're doing the right thing. You're asking for help. That's the whole thing about this email you sent me. You're asking for help good on you. Fantastic job. Whether you decide to take any of this advice, it's, it's okay. I won't take any of it personally, <laughs> but, uh, first off, just nice job. But I think on the, on the second layer here, there's, there's an opportunity to really propel forward in your recovery. As long as you've got the tools and the safety nets in place, you know, it, it might get to the point where he comes home. It's too triggering. If you reach that point, yeah, use those safety nets, call the sponsors, get out of the house. Make sure that option is there. However, just keep going within. Just sit with it. Once you get that feeling inside, which at 112 days now isn't for alcohol. You're not physically, you're not hands aren't shaking. You're not sweating. You, we're, not, we're not physically detoxing. There's something else. It's this desire to internally change our, our state of how we're feeling. This is, this is an exciting time for you, Libby. You, you emailed a podcast host in recovery. This takes a lot of courage. So fantastic job. Is any of this resonating with you? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I talked to my sponsor about this a lot, and she says the same thing. You know, I cannot change him. He's not going to quit drinking until he's ready. I couldn't stop drinking until I was ready. You know, and then there's the side of it, is he an alcoholic? Well, we both kind of agree, yes, he is. And if that is the case, then he can't help it. Mm, and so you two that's both, a hard... So you two have both had this conversation and, and he's like, yeah, maybe maybe I need to check my drinking. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say the word alcoholic. He has said, yes, I, I believe I'm an alcoholic. As far as going to AA and everything, he's definitely not ready for that step. But yes, I'm... We both agree, and then my sponsor agrees. You know, a drinker goes to the doctor, and their doctor tells them, you need to quit drinking. A non-alcoholic will say, okay, I can take it or leave it. You know, if your wife is trying to get sober and quit drinking, you say, well, that's fine. I'll just do it with you. Let's be a team. But if he can't stop, then I'd say that he that makes him an alcoholic. And we both know it's not your sponsor's job. It's not my job. It's not your job to determine if somebody's an alcoholic, but you know, you make some valid points, but I see another tremendous opportunity as this plot thickens is a guy named Dusty who I interviewed about 10 episodes ago. He got sober and then basically 50% of his family got sober and you can't tell your husband, just like you mentioned, a doctor can't tell your husband or anybody, Hey, it's time to quit drinking. It just doesn't work, but you can show people, you can show people the path and it sounds like, again, <laughs> oh, Paul, this guy looks at everything as an opportunity. That's, that's, not, that's not the case, and it hasn't always been this way. But you've got an opportunity to, to show your husband, not tell him, but to show him how, how, it, how it's done. And, and this is contagious. This sobriety thing is contagious. I've seen one person do it in even my own personal group, and I've seen other people do it in their groups. And then it just there's this trickle-down effect that's amazing. What are your thoughts on that? I, I, I agree. Uh, attraction rather, rather than promotion, right? You know, and I Bingo. think that's just what, what I, I think that's where some of my frustration stems from is I, I know how great it feels to be sober. I know how much more productive I am. I know how much better I feel. And I just want that for him. But I can't control that. I cannot change him. And that's, it's just, there's so many emotions for it, though. And I, you interviewed a psychologist, and I listened. And she said you get hijacked for, by your emotions, and I really love that because it it's so hard to explain. You know, you get so upset, you can't even. You're just seeing red. You can't even see it from the other point of view, and that's what happens a lot to me. You know, I, why do you have to go drink? Why did you have to drink last night? You know how much this interview means to me. You know, and then I get my feelings hurt and then I'm just frustrated. And then I argue with somebody that's been drinking, which I know I shouldn't do because that just blows up. I mean, it's just, oh, it's very frustrating. Uh, Libby, frustrating is a perfectly fair word to use. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, late 2017 is, is your journey in sobriety really got started. I, when you step back and look at a snapshot of your life right now, you are on a rocket ship propelled forward just at the cusp of your comfort zone. I mean, you you are recovering fast. In 112 days, I wasn't talking to my sponsor about this stuff. I wasn't emailing podcast hosts. I just want to say nice job, Libby. And it's frustrating. There's the emotions. But I do want you to do me a favor. Before you go to bed tonight, just sit down and say, nice job, Libby. You're crushing it. You are right where you need to be. This thing is not easy. And I'm so, I'm so happy you've made it this far. And I know you're going to go much further. And, and one more question before we hit the rapid fire round. What have you learned about yourself in this journey? I guess I've learned, I've, I've drank so long that I think I was just covering up it, or wasting, I guess, what what I could have been. So I'm just, I guess, like you said, to, you know, be more proud of myself. I, I learned that I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was. Sure. I think, I think alcohol covered up what you could have been. But I also think the alcohol is going to expedite the process to show you who you are and what you will become. Yeah. This is what, yeah, this is what I've found. And Libby, rapid fire round question one. If you could answer within 30, 60 seconds, that would be great. What was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, gosh. So I'd say from my last relapse, I went to – it's kind of a two-part story. I hope that's okay. Of course. I had gone out. It was a Sunday, so – 
my husband had taken my car at this point because he didn't want me drinking and driving, obviously, or able to go get more alcohol. So I just walked up the street to a little pizza joint, uh, sat at the bar, got drunk, got cut off, decided to try and walk to the liquor store, which is, I don't know, maybe a mile down the street, maybe half a mile. I ended up stopping at another restaurant, and they continued to serve me um, tequila shots. And I just called a friend. You know, I needed a ride. I was so drunk, and my friend had to you know, get me out to her car from this restaurant and she didn't really know what to do with me. I was just so such a mess that she took me back to the healing place. Um, they didn't really have a bed in detox. So I went over and I mentioned this as a homeless shelter as well. So I got to sleep on a mat next to a homeless person that night, got up first thing in the morning, called an Uber, stopped at about 7 a.m. at the gas station, got a six pack of beer, this was Monday now, so I, you know, found my husband's keys while he was asleep and went to the liquor store, got more alcohol, and proceeded to drink all day on Monday. I came to Tuesday morning, so that'll be the 23rd, and my husband just said, you know, you have scared your friends so badly. They they honestly didn't know what to do with you. I, you know, I literally had to check your breath every 20 minutes to make sure you were breathing last night. Wow. And that was, you know, and of course you wake up just with the worst depression and anxiety. And it was, that was just, that was my last bottom. Wow. And that's a great description of the roller coaster of addiction. And that's got to be a tough moment for your husband as well to go through that. Wondering if Mm -hmm. his wife is is not going to wake up. And I encourage you play this podcast episode for him, sit down on a couch next to each other and, and play it. I think a lot of healing will happen. Um, and, and, and next question, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? How are you going to get day 113, 114, month four and more? Well, I'm just going to continue working the AA program. I'm doing the 12 steps with my sponsor. I want to, you know, eventually help other people stay sober, sponsor somebody. I want to continue being in this program because I know I, know I, I have to do this for the rest of my life to stay sober. So. And in regards to sobriety, Libby, what's the best advice you've ever received? I'd say um, this is something we used to say at the healing place every morning before we got our day started and it was don't believe the lies. And that means, you know, our brain is constantly lying to us. It's saying, you know, you don't need to go to a meeting to say you're doing good. You got this. You can have one drink. You're not an alcoholic. All of these things are constantly our our brain is telling us and don't believe the lies is just know that that's not true. The human brain has 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day and the majority of them aren't true. I love it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? I'd say give AA a shot. I I know I've listened to some podcasts where people say they went to one AA meeting and just didn't feel good about it and it just you know kind of makes me cringe that they quit after one meeting. I mean, this 12-step program is truly amazing. The world would be a better place if everybody did a 12-step program, but it it truly is amazing, and I believe it works. So that would be my advice. Give AA a shot. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think a lot of times people just take breaks from AA. I went to my first meeting and relapsed two days later and took like a year off or you two years off from AA. And it sounds like you went to two meetings and you're like, not for me. So for some people, mm-hmm. it's just not the best fit for others. It's just more of an extended break, but I love the advice. And yeah. before we go, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you drink mouthwash in the morning to try to get rid of the shakes before work. Libby, thank you so much for joining us again. Great job. You're doing fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I was recently sent an article on KSBW.com that says a pint of beer will take 15 minutes off your life. And thank you, Carrie Mack, for including this one as well in the show notes. You can go to recoveryelevator.com, episode 216, and find the show notes there. The article says, for someone in their 40s, every glass of alcohol above the suggested weekly threshold of five shortens their life by 15 minutes. Let me summarize that in three words. Alcohol is shit. 
If you want to get a first-hand glimpse of how we are going to lead the Unfuck Yourself movement, think about coming to the Recovery Elevator Retreat in Bozeman, August 14th to the 18th. Now, I've said, don't wait. There's only a few spots left with every retreat that I've put on, and this is true. They've almost all sold out. But this one, guys, these retreats were about to hit that J-curve. Nashville was special. Somebody told me it was a top five weekend of their life. This is just three days in Nashville with a bunch of strangers. These events are special. It's time to embrace our role and lead this unfuck yourself movement. And here's the good news. It's a lot of fun. When you're on the right track, it doesn't have to be hard. This path of becoming whole, of embracing who you were always supposed to be, is a fun one. And you know you're on the right track when it's enjoyable. Okay, Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. This is an inside job, always has been, always will be. I love you guys. 